This is the 966, the podcast that focuses on all things Saudi Arabia from the two guys who produce the most widely read daily newsletter on the kingdom. This week, we'll be talking about net zero for Saudi Arabia and the climate change summit in Riyadh, the future investment initiative in its fifth year, and tourism in the kingdom. But before we get started this week, a special shukran to all those who have followed us on YouTube, (laughs) Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and especially for those of you who have given us a review. Thank you for that. If you haven't yet, Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast. It doesn't cost anything, It'll, and it will deliver our content directly to you. Um, Richard, another special shukran to those of you who have reached out to us with comments and feedback, or just to say hello, you can get in touch with us at 966podcast at gmail.com. Send us a tweet at 966podcast, or if you have any negative feedback, just email Richard directly. Here's my email. <laughs> for those of you who are new or just starting to follow us, we did an introduction to the podcast that is available on our podcast website, 966.transistor.fm. Okay, Richard, let's get to it. What's your one big interesting thing this week? This is awesome. The 966 has gone bilingual. <laughs> um, uh, uh, my one big thing, I always like, uh, I always like to b- talk about U.S. corporates um, and how they're doing in the region. So Boeing issued its commercial market outlook for 2021 to 2040. So it's their long-term forecast of commercial air traffic and airplane demand. And, and the outlet, the CMO is what they call it. The outlook forecast that airlines in the Middle East will require 3,000 new airplanes valued at $700 billion and aftermarket services such as maintenance and repair worth $740 billion. So that's about $1.5 trillion in total over the next 20 years. Now, in the CMO, the the the... the they do it breaking out by region and the middle east region is actually not large it's basically the arabian peninsula and um egypt to the to the west iran to the east and turkey to the north so it's not like north africa Um, but it goes on to say middle east uh, passenger traffic in the in the region's commercial fleet are projected to more than double over the 20-year forecast period more than two-thirds of airplane deliveries to the middle east will accommodate growth while one-third of deliveries will replace older airplanes with, with more fuel-efficient models. Uh, air freight represents an ongoing area of opportunity for Middle East, Middle East Airlines, this is CMO, CMO talking, uh, with the freighter fleet projected to nearly double from 80 airplanes in 2019 to 150 by 2040. Notably, air cargo traffic flown by Middle East carriers has increased since, uh, since 2020 by nearly 20%. Uh, with two of the world's top five cargo carriers based in the region. Now, this was interesting to me. I, was, I had no idea. So in terms of freight ton kilometers flown, the top five cargo aircraft services in the world are one FedEx Express, two UPS Airlines, three right behind UPS, uh, Qatar Airways Cargo, and then Emirates Sky Cargo, and then Cathay Pacific. Uh, so I thought this was interesting. Uh, you know, obviously Boeing's trying to get back on its feet and and, and rebuild its its uh, business after the 737 and other setbacks. Uh, but the, so the CMO obviously is is something that people look at and uh, are very interested. So uh, hopefully, you know, Boeing will get a big piece of this business in the Middle East. My one interesting thing this week is the great white shark. I'm not talking about the predator fish, of course, but a different kind of killer. Greg Norman, the famous Australian golfer, is reportedly going to be the commissioner for a new Saudi-backed golf series. There isn't a lot known about it yet, but according to a report out today in Golf Week, 
It's unclear whether the new series will be unveiled as a full league or as a trial balloon with a handful of tournaments. Of course, Richard, you remember that last year, earlier this year, the Saudis were stirring up trouble in the golf world and they were angling to create a rival tour to the PGA Tour, which, of course, the PGA Tour predictably didn't like one bit. PGA Tour Commissioner Jay Monahan said that any player who commits to the new circuit would not be allowed to continue as a tour member. There's a lot of drama here, but Saudi Arabia is interested in golf. Regardless of what happens in the coming weeks, Saudi Arabia is building several new and potentially awesome golf courses and will continue with hosting the Saudi International this year with the Asian Tour. Richard, we're going to have to play some of those courses next time we go over. Uh, but there's, uh, We'll probably hear a lot about this in the next week. So I just wanted to give a little preview of that. First thing we need to do, I guess, I guess eight PGA golfers have put in an exemption to play at the Saudi Open. Again, it's just Saudi International. So uh, have you gotten in your exemption request yet? I, I, I haven't submitted it. It's sitting on my uh, kitchen counter, but I haven't you, fired you it You want to get that in? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I assume the, you were invited to play. <laughs> the Saudi International is played at the Royal Greens uh, Golf Club right on the Red Sea. It's a fantastic golf course. So it'll be interesting to see what happens there. Dustin Johnson won it last year and has filed his um, request for an exemption. So that'll be interesting to watch this week. Topic one, Richard, let's move on. Net zero for Saudi Arabia and the climate change summit, which started earlier this week. Saudi Arabia has pledged to achieve net zero emissions by 2060. The announcement was made in a speech Saturday by Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman at the Saudi Green Initiative, an event in Riyadh timed to take place just before this weekend's climate change summit, which starts Sunday in Glasgow. Saudi Arabia also said it would accelerate its carbon target this decade and aim to produce half of its power domestically from renewables by 2030. That's ambitious. 2060 is a decade after the United States promised to reach net zero. The announcement makes it clear that Saudi Arabia will start, will still export oil and continue as a reliable supplier and market regulator during the transition. Richard, can you talk a little bit more about what's in this big plan and where the Saudis go from here? This is a lot to unpack. Um, when, I when I was executive director with the Middle East Policy Council, I had an uh, uh, opportunity to work with uh, Chaz Freeman for a decade. Uh, Chaz Freeman was the uh, U.S. ambassador to Saudi Arabia during the Gulf War. He was a lot more than that. He's a decorated diplomat and a, a terrific career. He's a successful businessman and author, one of the brightest guys I know. But he used to comment, and this was back in the day, that the Saudis were born without a PR gene, uh, which is, which was true. I mean, they, they didn't really, they were reluctant to engage. They were uh, uh, hypersensitive. They really weren't uh, set up to deal with the rough and tumble of, of Western media at, at all. Uh, so, um, so, you know, that was accurate at the time. They've developed a, a PR gene, and we see it in so many things that they do. They, you know, it's a, it's a, a large production that, you know, hits all markets. And, and they actually, uh, some people, critics in particular, who say, you know, Saudi Arabia and others, but Saudi Arabia sometimes mistakes PR for policy. So what you have here is, you know, critics saying, well, this is just PR. Uh, and other people saying this is useful policy. Uh, the critics will note, like you say, that they intend to continue to produce and, and, and export fossil fuels. Uh, they, they point to um, 
the government. So they cut emissions from operations. So Saudi Aramco, part of this was Saudi Aramco also announced that the, they would cut emissions to net zero by 2050, as the, the country of Saudi Arabia is shooting for 2060. Russia also is shooting for 2060. Uh, but so so they criticize the Saudi Aramco plan because it's just you know only applies their scopes scope one is production scope two is processing scope three is consumption so uh saudi arabia is criticized here well, well you know the issue is consumption and uh you know that's not necessarily fair in the sense that the un the, the convention framework on climate change what they're asking for is is countries to submit plans for their domestic use so saudi arabia is not responsible for others demand now you can say well, you know from a climate change perspective we have to hit targets and the saudis are saying okay um we understand that you're trying to put us out of business and we understand that uh, that inevitably we would put out of business in terms of fossil fuels uh but it's not incumbent upon us to just close up shop right now um and one of the things we're seeing in the run-up to cop 26 we just discussed this at, in our last podcast last week uh, is that both Saudi Arabia and Russia are becoming a little proactive on the PR, on the public relations, but also in, just in messaging and saying, look, we, we'd like you to consider two things. Uh, one, uh, let's maybe uh, reassess the pace you're trying to achieve in getting rid of fossil fuels. And is it smart to immediately as the IEA uh, suggested slash any kind of investment in fossil fuel exploration and production. And two is to uh, be open to other means to mitigate carbon emissions. And this is a big part of what the Saudis and the Russians are saying. Um, that runs into a lot of, uh, of other issues. Again, they have their critics. We know Saudi Arabia has their critics from the from That's the PR side. So the Saudis the PR is good from the Saudi side in the sense that they are seen as being constructive and cooperative and having a plan going forward. This is a departure from sort of digging into heels and slow rolling in, in, in previous COPs and uh, just in general. So that's good PR. I mean, I think, I think Saudi Arabia uh, recognizes they need to be a player here. Um, on the policy side, uh, there's a lot of positive in here. And, and, and so if, if you're taking the UN mandate that, you know, you, you come with a plan for to deal with your domestic emissions, Saudi Arabia needs to address this. Um, decarbonizing Saudi Arabia would be a big achievement. I mean, the, the kingdom is, is the world number four consumer of oil. And that's way out of proportion to the economy, which is the 20th biggest and its population, which is 41st. It, uh, on a per capita basis, Saudis emit as much carbon as Americans. So that's just over 15 metric tons a year. Uh, but this is interesting here. Um, the kingdom uses 3.5 million barrels per day of oil and gas liquids for its energy mix. This is power generation in particular, almost exclusively. So, I mean, that's on a par with, that's 3.5 million barrels per day is on a par with Japan, Russia, Germany, and Brazil, uh, which is, that's an enormous amount of, of emissions for a country of 34 million. When you're looking at a country like Brazil is 213 or Russia 146. 
So, you know, if, if Saudi Arabia can get a handle on its emissions, that's a real contribution. Um, the issue with the Saudi approach, and one thing that the people, uh, you know, critics again point to is, all right, you're, what the Saudis are saying, we're going to do this. And we have a vocabulary thing here. We, we, we refer to it as circular carbon economy, uh, uh, carbon capture economy. There's a CCUS, which is capture carbon use and storage. Let's just all call it the carbon capture economy because it, it, it alludes to the same goal. Uh, Saudi Arabia feels like it can be, it can use this to really mitigate its carbon emissions. The issue is, is this is still nascent. The technology is still nascent. It's not, uh, it's not widely used. It's also expensive to employ. Um, as it happens, Saudi Arabia might be actually uniquely well suited to using carbon capture. They have their geology uh, is such that they have. Um, they have all sorts of uh, depleting oil fields that can sequester, sequester carbon. They have, they have a lot of space to do it. Most of their emissions are localized into industrial complexes and, and uh, processing. So, you know, the capture is, is a little more easily done. So, uh, you know, when they say this is a possibility, it may very well be a possibility. And of course, they're moving on to, by, uh, you know, Saudi Ramco and, and others are, are part of their thing is that there'll be 50% renewable energy by 2030, which is earlier. And the energy minister recently said, well, hey, we may beat 2060. Uh, we don't know. Uh, but a lot of it is dependent on, on technology uh, and obviously moving to renewables. And as the Saudis are moving into hydrogen, all of these are at least carbon capture and hydrogen, all of these at the moment are expensive and still have a, in terms of their, their technology uh, evolution, still have a little ways to go. So they're placing a big bet based on these things. Uh, nonetheless, they're placing a big bet and they're making a commitment. It does matter that they reduce their carbon emissions because they emit a lot. Um, it may be that this could be a real opportunity. I mean, Saudi Arabia is one of the things that discussed at the FII uh, that's ongoing uh, is, you know, green tech is a big issue, uh, is a, a big area of focus. And perhaps in pursuit of this, we see some real strides in green tech in terms of carbon capture and hydrogen and other things. So I guess the point is, is er inevitably people are going to be unhappy with Saudi uh, and they're going to dismiss it as PR. But on the policy side, it's good to see Saudi Arabia making uh, a commitment, uh, sharing a plan as technology-based and reliant as it is, uh, and and being being becoming a player. So it's these are all positives. But again, uh, nobody's going to be happy with this. Uh, not everybody's not going to be happy with this, and uh, Saudi Arabia will continue to. Uh, have to be seen as a constructive player and continue to have to make real efforts to, to achieve the goals they've set out for themselves. So, like I said, it's a lot to unpack, and that's just a little bit of it. But it's an interesting thing, and I think it's, it's uh, a timely announcement running into the COP26. Uh, you know, a lot of good things here, a lot of questionable things here. We'll see how it unfolds.
I think it's really smart of you to put it in two different sort of columns. One is the public re- public relations, the PR column, and the other is the actual policy column. I mean, there's no way that they could have announced a date of 2022 saying that they would basically just shut off all oil production. I mean, if you want to really make people mad, that would be one way to do it. Um, but I think the, the PR angle here is really interesting. I mean, MBS in the announcement actually positioned this issue as this isn't something that we are going to dread doing. This is, and these are his words, an economic opportunity for our citizens in the private sector. I think MBS is saying this is a chance to tackle this issue head on and set goals and cooperate with the world on the global stage. I mean, the, the, the event itself was positioned right before the, U, the UN climate change conference. So it's, I mean, just in that is saying we're getting ahead of this now. I mean, alternate realities of this are Saudi Arabia continues to to deny climate change at all, or says they will do absolutely nothing because they are an oil exporter and that's just the way the world works. But it's just interesting, like the the PR here is um, Saudi Arabia isn't looking back anymore. They're looking forward and saying climate change is a real threat. We're ready to do our part. I think anybody, I I think environmentalists are disappointed in the year 2060 and they may be right that we don't have a lot of time and we need to move quickly. But Everybody knows that changing how the world gets its energy post product energy uh, and how it produces energy and consumes energy that takes a long time to change. It's it's just not a snap of the finger thing. Um, that's just the PR side of this. And I think it was MBS personally made the announcement saying this is what we're going to do. This is an opportunity. Let's take advantage of this. Let's invest accordingly. And on the policy side, you know, it's a huge investment from Saudi Arabia. They're saying $187 billion just this decade. That's 700 billion rials. That's yeah. a lot of money. So there's two things here, and we haven't even fully unpacked it, but it's just, I thought it was striking that they're sort of changing their own narrative on this. Not that they had one before, but they're sort of saying, hey, like we're ready to, we're ready to join the global, global community on this and solve this problem and contribute from our side to, to a resolution. I think it's a great point that you make, and and that right, like you said, that 187 billion over 10 years. They've also, you know, started a or introduced a, a 10 billion um, investment fund that will be looking at green mm-hmm. tech in particular, but you know, people who want to invest. So you're exactly right, and Saudi Arabia has been doing this very well of late. Is all right. This is an opportunity, and everything about the 2030 in the terms of diversification is not. Uh, been couched as uh, an onerous burden, but uh, a chance to move to the next uh, economy, uh, which is a great, which is the right way to do it. So I think you hit it on the head there. Uh, it, as I said, you, you know, it, 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 we could look up in eight, 12 years and all of a sudden Saudi Arabia is a hot set, a hotbed of, of green tech, you know, that they've mastered real carbon capture uh, techniques that are useful and, and, and actually mitigate significantly. Now, I would add, um, one of the things, uh, it's a big hill to climb. Uh, at the moment, I was looking at this, uh, the, the uh, terms of carbon capture amounts, today about 40 million metric tons of carbon is captured per year. Per year. To reach climate goals, uh, deployment must reach 5.6 gigatons. Uh, so, so as I said, it's a big hill to climb, uh, but you know, as, as to return to the beginning, the UN says, let's, let's see your domestic proposition. What are you? What what are your goals? And that's what Saudi Arabia is talking about. This is this is what we're emitting, and they're a big emitter. This is what we want to cut. 
the world itself will have to deal with the consumption of oil. And, you know, the sooner you put Saudi Arabia out of business from, you know, climate change perspective, people will advocate that. Uh, but again, the Saudis don't, don't need to immediately close up shop. No, and there's, there's a like lot in, yeah, there's a lot in Vision 2030 and from 2016 when it was announced that sort of hinted at this new posture. I mean, it, it's all about sustainable, uh, sustainably developed tourism projects and investment in green tech, like you just mentioned. I mean, the investment in Lucid and the designs to eventually build batteries and cars, electric vehicles in Saudi Arabia, it's just completely unheard of if you were to mention that a decade ago. Oh, yeah. And and uh, last week we discussed an Australian firm investing three billion dollars into mining uh, specific metals that Saudi Arabia has that are used in batteries. So it, it's sort of like been building to this moment. So just it was very interesting to see that this week. OK, so let's move on to our second topic, the Future Investment Initiative. It's fifth year, uh, the FII. It wrapped up its two day event today. There's a lot to cover here, Richard. The event was opened with a performance by Gloria Gaynor, who sang her hit, <laughs> I Will Survive. Um, the FII is Saudi Arabia's premier annual conference hosted in Saudi Arabia, it's sometimes referred to as Davos in the desert. And really, it just attracts some of the, the biggest names, the brightest minds in finance, investment, uh, but also government figures um, this year, I mean, just to name a few, Larry Fink of BlackRock, David Solomon, Goldman Sachs, Ray Dalio, uh, founder and chairman of Bridgewater Associates, many more. Um, and it also always sees appearances and comments from just about every Saudi minister, top CEO in Saudi Arabia and more. The event's a big who's who in doing business in Saudi Arabia. Um, each year, huge contracts are announced, these mega deals. But um, and I'm going to quote from an Arab news piece that we included in our Sustig News Review today, um, which you can get at sustg.com. Um, this year was a bit different. Um, writing from Air for Arab News, while Wail Mahdi described the different vibe this year, quote, there was no talk about big contracts. Instead, the powerful participants were discussing how we can give back to humanity and solve big problems at a global at a global level. It is all about sustainability and investing in humanity. Richard, there's a lot going on this week. Uh, different vibe, though, to the FII. Agreed. And I, uh, you know, I, I talked about public relations in the in the uh, in our first segment. Uh, and when you look at the platform that FII has become, so five years ago, 2017, the first one. Uh, and what you know, the big issue, the big things coming out of that one was uh, the announcement of Neom and the uh, SoftBank Vision Fund, along with some other things. Then, um, you know, 2018, 2019, 2020 was virtual, I guess, in, Jan in, in this January. So they're back in person now, five years. And you could, I, I, you know, we're, we're not global summiteers, so we don't have a, can't personally compare, but uh, you can argue it's a top five global summit. This is five years down the road. And this is, what Saudi Arabia, when you start these things, this is the purpose of this. This is a, this is a platform for Saudi Arabia to, to, to share its narrative, to push its storylines. And, uh, you know, when you have the G20 last year, you have this this year, you have a, you have a, uh, a number of events now uh, where Saudi Arabia is seen as a global player, as a constructive global player, and as a forward-thinking global player, this is all different. 
and, and, and I think this is all when who, when they conceive of these things, and and so much of Saudi what comes out of Saudi Arabia to the the layman, the the innocent bystander, it seems so grandiose. Everything is mega giga, mega giga, uh, and it's uh, and you wonder what the purpose is. So, but you, you know, you see the FII five years down the road that it has a real purpose. And from Saudi Arabia's perspective, it's it's a great platform, but it's also clearly become a forum for discussing topics of the day that are meaningful. And and I think the theme to, of this one was investing in humanity. Again, as you pointed out accurately, I think a little different than the sort of uh, 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 showcase for Saudi things and Saudi initiatives that it dominated it early on. Uh, this still has super Saudi Arabia. We're doing things, but it has, unlike the G20, it, it's talking about globally important topics that matter to every country, not just Saudi Arabia. Yeah, it's amazing to think about how different this felt this year, watching it from afar, watching it online. Then, for example, the first FII. I mean, the the events have been awkward at times. They're, they have a right. sort of World's Fair or at least they used to have like a world's fair vibe to them where like a robot would come out and a robot would get citizenship. And, you know, of course there was the, there was the FII that took place just after the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. And, you know, the whole world was looking at this event, just wondering to see like what will happen almost as an entertainment thing. But it really is striking how much Saudi Arabia has changed in five years. And it kind of to see this conference grow up a little bit from being like a big announcement, you know, big, deal forum where there's mous 100 billion dollars whatever and and have it more be like hey these are the five smartest guys in finance and we're going to start talking about crypto and the right. future of investing and stuff like that it's just like it's really cool to see this this uh global forum kind of mature over time yeah it's it's a nice place to be and uh you're exactly right i mean you have steven schwartzman over there talking about u.s inflation uh and it's a it's a broader palette that they paint from now. All right, so let's move on to the third topic, a more fun topic, um, tourism in Saudi Arabia. <laughs> um, this really deserves more than one segment. So if you subscribe to this podcast, you'll probably hear a lot more about tourism, but tourism is huge in Saudi Arabia. At least they want it to be. Um, they want to be a tourist destination and they're really building a tourism industry effectively from scratch. Um, as part of the ongoing economic reforms in Saudi Arabia, authorities want Saudis to both <clears throat> travel within the kingdom's borders instead of going abroad for vacation, but they also want foreigners like you and me, Richard, to visit. Uh, the goal is both to open the kingdom up to the world, but more importantly, to grow the Saudi economy. After the pandemic year, Saudi Arabia is going to be looking uh, closely for a big rebound in tourism. And this week at the FII, the tourism minister said that he expected to see 50 million tourist visas issued next year. Everywhere you turn in Saudi Arabia, it seems a new, huge, ambitious tourist project is being planned. Last week, the kingdom, for example, just the latest example, announced that it would create a new theme park called The Rig, the built, rig. On an, built on an offshore platform. Earlier this month, MBS uh, in an announcement said that Saudi would invest $13 billion in the Asir region. Um, these are just two of the most recent announcements. I mean, of course, they're investing in... Uh, the Red Sea development, I mean, huge, huge investments into Riyadh, the Saudi capital to develop that. Um, Richard, tourism is huge now in Saudi Arabia, and, and it's really a way forward um, for the kingdom. We're talking a lot about economic diversification today. 
Um, talk a little bit about uh, Saudi Arabia's tourism ambitions and and sort of what it means uh, in the you know in the context of all the changes happening in the kingdom today. That rig is brilliant, isn't it? It's cool. They Repur- have hotels on it too, which is amazing. <laughs> well, repurposing a, a you know an offshore uh, oil platform into a, a resort destination <laughs> is uh, you know speaks volumes about what Saudi Arabia is trying to do. Um, yes, tourism. You know, they've looked around, and it's part of Vision 2030, and they looked around at at, at uh, sectors that they really wanted to promote, manufacturing, technology, uh, minerals, so many things. And among them, and chief, not chief among them, but certainly one of the primary ones is tourism. And they recognize that, you know, most economies, global economies, 10% of their GDP is derived from tourism. And as you said, Saudi Arabia sorely, sorely lags for any number of reasons. Uh, so, so uh, Ahmed Khatib, who's the head of tourism, was was prevalent at the FII and uh, has been speaking a lot about what their goals are. And I gather in, in 20, 2019, about 3.5% of the GDP was provided by tourism. They expect 4% this year. Obviously, 2020 was an anomaly. Um, he mentioned uh, 45 million visitors in this year, 2021. That's the expectation. So... And their ultimate goal is 100 million by 2030. Now, the thing to remember, and I think to, to, a key element of this is of that 45 million, the vast majority of them were domestic Saudis. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, that's not necessarily a criticism because they really want to uh, expand domestic tourism. This is this is important not only for the economy, but it's important for the quality of life. You know, the big a- aspect of Vision Twenty Years is improving quality of life and giving Saudis options to do do things. So, for example, the Riyadh season, uh, which uh, was doubled this year from three months to six months. Uh, in 2019, it was a huge success. They their numbers were they spent 830 million dollars to put it on. They uh, and that uh, created 1.6 billion dollars in terms of commercial activity and returns to local businesses and that sort of thing. So it's it's a it's a, a money maker. It's good for the economy. On top of that, it's great for the quality of life and options for Saudis to do internally. Uh, and again, um, you know, keeping Saudis to you know love to go to Dubai. They love to go to any number of places. They're great travelers. Keeping some of that money home is good policy. Uh, and so the Saudis are making headway on this and uh, they're really committed. I mean, you, you, you didn't mention, I guess they want to spend 1 trillion uh, reals on this over the next decade. And uh, they're all in, they're all in and, and they're going about it. They're, they're, they're uh, partnering with uh, IATA uh, as you see, I mean, they're, they're, they have cruises now in the Red Sea. They're trying to get, um, trying to backstop a lot of this by helping uh, travel agencies in Saudi Arabia. And it's kind of a very, it's kind of a spread out, very small universe to, to get them up to speed and get them larger and more capable to handle this. Everything about, a lot, everything about you know, their, their culture and arts is, is designed to help not only expand culture and arts, but also to attract people to come and, and be in Saudi Arabia. So it's, uh, it's an organized, it appears to be very organized, very determined, and um, 
certainly with the long view, uh, a project that they seem to be making some headway on. But as I said, especially with 2020 throwing in there, it's mostly domestic right now. And what you find, you know, when you talk, when people talk about tourism, inevitably someone, especially if they're not really deeply conversant with the issue, will ask about alcohol. Uh, you know, because they sort of feel like, you know, why would I come to Saudi Arabia if I can't drink? And Saudi Arabia is laying out a whole slew of reasons why you'd want to come. Uh, and not only because it's, it's geologically interesting, it's, arch it's archaeologically interesting. Uh, the infrastructure now is becoming very nice and, and much more user friendly. And you've got some lovely places to see and stay. Uh, you know, there are reasons to be there beyond alcohol. I think if you, I, I completely agree, but I think if you look at what Saudi Arabia is trying to do in the tourism space, it's really two things. One is they're building all of these new destinations, vacation destinations, like things on the Red Sea, big resorts on the Red Sea, um, or, or making Riyadh more attractive as a place to visit, a place to eat at fine restaurants and see a bunch of cool stuff uh, around the kingdom's capital in Duria, for example. I mean, there's you can't even get all of these examples into one into one list because it's just they're investing in tourism everywhere. Um, I think one of the sort of tracks they're taking is investing in new tourist destinations that are new and, and um, you know, entertainment focused. And I think the other is developing um, historical sites and sort of taking its history, the kingdom's history as central to the human narrative and saying this is a reason to come as well. We have rock sculptures that are as old as the pyramids. We have, I mean, the old uh, frankincense trade route came through here. And also Saudi Arabia is sort of an unvisited country still. I mean, we have these tourist visas, but really the only way that you could go before the last few years was to be there on business or to attend as a pilgrim uh, for the Hajj or another pilgrimage. So what they're trying to do, I think, is is sort of provide new modern destinations, like make it a place for you to come take a cruise or to sit on the beach. And then the other is don't forget to go to Al-Ula or these other places that are not just part of the human history, but untouched. And there aren't a lot of places like that anymore. I'm glad you mentioned booze because I think that that is a huge hurdle, but I also think they know that. I mean, just this week, uh, Neom, um, a senior official told AFP that Neom, uh, which is the new city they're building um, on the Red Sea coast near Egypt, um, might allow alcohol, but it's not like they don't know that people like alcohol and like to drink alcohol on vacations. It's more that it's a deeply conservative Muslim country that is home to the, you know, two holiest sites in Islam. And it's not an easy thing to say, this is, we are a hollowed, this is hollowed ground. Um, but, you know, we want to build a senior frogs on the shore over here. I hope you don't mind. So it's, it's, an, it's sort of an, they've got a lot of sort of tough decisions to make, but you can see these two tracks developing. I mean, it, it's like entertainment and new stuff, and then also just developing old things, which I think is really cool. Agreed. And, uh, you know, they'll, they'll kick that can down the road. Uh, they'll build the tourism industry based on the, the, the things you've just, just mentioned. And at some point, though, if they have to cross that, that bridge, they will. But you put your finger on it. It's a bigger decision for them than it is for Bahrain or the Emirates or Qatar. It's just, it's just much more fraught. Uh, but again, they'll, they'll kick it down the road. You know, the, you know the, this was a NEOM. We don't know when NEOM is scheduled to you know, start kicking in 2025. Uh, but it, that's some way down the road.
Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, it's, it's like a decision when you, when, when it is taken, it's going to be taken in such a way that is, you know, just sort of balanced perfectly with the needs of the locals and that, you know, there's the culture, but also, you know, it just the undeniable fact that people like to have a beer on the beach and a glass of wine with a dinner, you know, at a, at a, at a fancy restaurant. So it's, you know, this is actually a separate topic we could explore. But, um, but, but, it's just but it, 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 you know, my, my take on Saudi, uh, in terms of progress and reform, social reform has long been, uh, that they wait until economic imperative is overwhelming. They did this with women driving. They did this with getting in women in the workplace. Uh, you know, it was, it was by the time they made that decision in September, 2017 to let women drive. Uh, it just was so economically sensible that it was very hard to argue with it. Obviously there was some people, plenty of people argued with it because of, of societal norms, but the, the overwhelming support, there was overwhelming support for it. You know, if and when the time should come for alcohol, it would be that uh, it just economically, it makes too much sense. And that tourism has become too much, too important a source of income. Uh, to curtail it in, in a significant way. But again, I think that's down the road and uh, a, you know, a decision for a later time. Let's end it there. Richard, thank you very much. Uh, everybody, if you could uh, just subscribe to us on anywhere you get your, your podcasts, um, if you're listening to us, just hit the subscribe button. It does help us a lot. Um, any feedback you want to give us, um, the 966, sorry, 966podcast at gmail.com topic ideas, um, comments about my hair, anything you want to say, get in touch with us there. And our um, new background, our new blur our, background. Yeah. We're, and we're filming this in an Instagram filter. I hope you like it. Um, <laughs> uh, portrait mode, but Richard, thank you very much. Shukran Lucian. Shukran. <laughs>